The rule of thumb, nothing about us without us, also applies to the United Nations. And we should always be in the room participating in conversations when there are global decisions being made that will come back and impact us. That's Professor Cheryl Lightfoot. She's the new North American representative at the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and is proudly Anishinaabe from the Lake Superior Band of Ojibwe. She's our guest today on the Akamemi Podcast. Tanse Tuau and welcome to the Akamemi Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And right now, as the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues is taking place in New York, an important bill is working its way through Parliament and towards royal assent. That's Bill C-15, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, has now passed second reading in the House of Commons. And as the name suggests, Bill C-15 has its roots through the work of First Nations people at the United Nations. And now, for the first time, a First Nations woman from Canada has been appointed as a North American representative at the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Cheryl Lightfoot is the Canada Research Chair of Global Indigenous Rights and Politics at the University of British Columbia, She is an Associate Professor in First Nations and Indigenous Studies, Political Science, and the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. So Cheryl Lightfoot, great big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Thank you so much, National Chief. It's uh, my honor to be here, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. So Cheryl, congratulations on being named the North American Representative. For our listeners that may not know some of the United Nations bodies and organs and functions and institutions, can you explain what is this expert mechanism, what does it do, and what do you hope to achieve in your role being there? It's a a very good question because the United Nations seems so far away from most of us uh, when we're living our our day-to-day lives. So let me see if I can bring a little bit of clarity to to those halls of New York and Geneva that uh, are so distant, especially during COVID times right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are three uh, major bodies within the United Nations that Indigenous peoples and advocates have pushed for over the years. And that's one important point uh, that we want to start with is none of these three bodies was a gift from the United Nations uh, to us. We we fought for each one of these. And so each one Mm -hmm. of these come from Indigenous people's voices and experiences. And there are three. Uh, The first is the Permanent Forum, which is going on right now in New York. And you and I are not in New York at the moment. We are sitting uh, in our our homes uh, working virtually. But I imagine uh, we are both joining virtually in New York. And that's been in place since 2001. And that's where Indigenous peoples typically gather by the thousands to bring their issues and and share information and uh, speak with other Indigenous peoples as well as UN member states. And then the second one is the UN Special Rapporteur. And that office is charged uh, with many urgent action petitions. So if there's a conflict situation going on around the world, um, or a series of conflicts, that office can be brought in to help mitigate uh, the conflict. Uh, The expert mechanism 
is a body that works for the Human Rights Council. So it is specifically charged with providing advice and expertise to the member states of the Human Rights Council and advising them on how they can better achieve the aims of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so it's composed of seven different independent experts uh, on the rights of Indigenous Peoples, one from each of the seven geographic regions of the world. and these experts come together to do several things. So they are, of course, always promoting and trying to protect Indigenous people's rights. And they do this by trying to clarify some of the key principles, uh, principles like self-determination and free prior and informed consent, and also examine what we might call good practices around the world. I hate to say best practices because I'm mm -hmm. not sure that as a world we're really in a place to talk about best practices on Indigenous rights yet, but there are places and spaces around the world where progress is being made. And so we can examine good practices and challenges and bring light to those. And then we also suggest to states particular measures, policy changes, legislation, legislative changes, legal changes that they can take in order to better respect the human rights of Indigenous peoples. And so we can do specific country engagements uh, in, in particular locations. Uh, New Zealand has done some. Uh, Finland has done some when there's a particular sticky issue that they want some help on. And also it, more broad studies on those key principles that I mentioned, self-determination, free prior and informed consent, and so on. You mentioned the three bodies and First Nations people, Indigenous peoples from throughout the world really fought to establish these bodies. So you're the expert mechanism of the rights of Indigenous peoples official rep for North America. Uh, you mentioned the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. And I believe that individual is Mr. Jeff Roth. Yes. And, yes. and the UN Special Rapporteur. And currently, who is that? individual again? The the special rapporteur is named Francisco Cali, and he's a, a Mayan from Guatemala. Okay. So three very important bodies. Now, again, now you're there and you talked about self-determination and free prior informed consent. Is there something that you as an individual being selected really want to key in on in your role there as our, as our representative at the expert mechanism? There is National Chief. Um, and I just would like to mention there are a couple different studies that I'll be inheriting. Uh, my predecessor will be passing the baton to me on May 1st. So that's next week. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a very, coming up very soon. And there are two studies underway that she'll be passing to me. One is a study on the rights of the Indigenous child, which needs completion. And the other is a study on Indigenous self-determination that also will be coming to completion this year. So those will be high up on the agenda. Now, personally, I have a couple priorities of things that I hope to work on during my my three-year term. Mm -hmm. The first is to further work on the principle of free prior and informed consent. And the expert mechanism did a study in that came out in 2018 on free prior and informed consent. And it's a study that's used quite quite widely and broadly around the world. But I think by next year, it's time to do some further deeper work on it. Because even though we've had those conversations, we still have so many instances around the world, both here in Canada and beyond, where this principle is not well understood and certainly not being um, 
operationalized. And, and we can all think of two dozen cases off the top of our heads uh, where this is in place. And then also on the agenda uh, is another item that isn't well known out in, in the communities, and that is the push for more of a participation status for Indigenous peoples uh, within the United Nations body. And this has been an issue that I've been watching carefully for, oh, about six, seven, eight years now. And it's one uh, I care deeply about uh, because the, the, the rule of thumb, of course, nothing about us without us also applies to the United Nations. And we should always be in the room and participating in conversations when there are global decisions being made that will come back and impact us. And therefore, I think it's essential that we make movement on this enhanced participation status and work the, work out a solution to uh, some of the problems that have come up in, in recent years. Awesome. That's two very important areas. Free prior informed consent links to self-determination and watching, monitoring, and, and looking at greater participation for Indigenous peoples throughout the UN bodies. Two very important priorities. So I'm glad that you're there. I'm glad that you're there at that expert mechanism level and pushing for these things because we've talked about the importance of free prior informed consent from Indigenous peoples as the right to say yes and or the right to say no or the right to say yes with qualifications. Um, and, and so that's something that not only uh, nation states, but the entire private sector in the world really needs to understand and get the rights and title holders involved sooner than later in any project. Absolutely. Now, in what role does the international human rights system play in protecting Indigenous peoples and their rights? That's a question that I hear a lot, and I have heard a lot in my career as an academic, uh, which, as I think you know, has actually only been part of my adult life. I was uh, on the community level for the first part of my career uh, back in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, working uh, with Indigenous-based organizations there. And so I come from a place uh, and a space where I understand the deep connection between local grassroots work and the international, but it isn't obvious to everyone uh, in, in either direction what that connection is. And so uh, we can look at it historically. Uh, and as I mentioned in my opening comments, everything that's happened to create indigenous space at the United Nations in the last uh, 30, 40, gosh, almost approaching 50 years now has been because of indigenous initiatives. And the main reason for going there, um, and actually the, the early uh, advocates went back in the 1920s, almost 100 years ago, going mm -hmm. to the international space, trying to get heard, trying to be heard by the international community in hopes that we could make some change back in our own countries, in our own mm -hmm. context, and in our own communities. And that's still the case. People come to the United Nations, Indigenous peoples from all around the world, bringing their very localized issue. But what we find when we go there is that many of us, thousands of us, millions of us share the same issues. And therefore, some of the answers uh, can be found in a connection between international work, national work, and local work. Because information 
and political pressure, quite honestly, moves in both directions. It comes from mm -hmm. the local through the national up to the international and then back down again. And one of the key reasons that uh, the advocates in the generation before us tried to get a UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and worked so hard for that for so many years was that it was clear that we needed international standards in order to teach, guide, and direct our own countries and our own provinces and our own states in those countries that have states instead of provinces, we needed a set of tools uh, to tell them exactly uh, in an international way uh, with this international standard, what our rights are in ways that can be shared across uh, all these national boundaries. So they end up both specific and general. And those two intersect uh, constantly and in, in constant dialogue. And you can see that. And actually, it's heartbreaking when you go to the, the permanent forum in New York and you see the same issues repeated over and over and over again, whether it's British Columbia, Guatemala, Kenya, mm -hmm. India, Vietnam, Thailand. We, we hear it from everywhere. And so we share those same experiences. And in many ways, we can push back in the same way using those tools. Um, okay. So it's, it's it's important to always keep uh, those those both directions in mind uh, because so many as well of the issues that we're all facing right now are not just local, they're global. Mm -hmm. And they involve things like climate change. They involve things like multinational corporations. And and so it's important to keep in regular conversation, I think, uh, in all of those directions. Okay. Well, that's a nice segue to my next question because, okay, work at New York and work at the international level uh, the relevancy and the impact for people out on the reserves and the communities. So like even I'm from Little Black Bear First Nations and Treaty 4 territory and we're, you know, we speak Cree and Nakota and a mixed tribe. So the work that you're doing, how does that impact and benefit people out on the reserve at level? If I was going to go home to my aunties, my uncles, my cousins back home and have tea with them next Saturday and I'm explaining this work at the UN, what would I say? Well, I think you need to get a big cup of tea going uh, because it can be sometimes <laughs> a, a, a long conversation. Um, but I think it's important um, to to take the key. Uh, the key takeaway to me is that, uh, especially in the 21st century, again, we all share similar experiences of colonization, state repression, not uh, fully recognizing our treaty rights, not supporting our cultures and, and our land rights and our, our indigenous forms of governance. That's not unique to Little Black Bear. That's a common experience. And we all are, are in this fight together. It's important when we look ahead in the next couple of decades, that we have that UN declaration at our disposal, that we all know those rights and we can articulate those rights. And I think in particular, a country that we live in like Canada, there is a space for a conversation about human rights and wanting to adhere to human rights. So using that as a framework for uh, articulating what we already know our rights to be, they're inherent. We know mm -hmm. uh, our, our, our connections to land, we know our cultures, we know our governance. We, we don't need an international education on those things. Um, but what we can do is speak back to our governments using languages and tools that resonate with them. And that is a key uh, piece that we can all move forward on. Uh, 
and you know some of the issues that we're all facing are so big they're so global and uh, it's important to get into those conversations so that our voices are at those tables uh, when states are making decisions that will impact us uh, at, at little black bear for you and at my home community uh, in Lake Superior as well yeah so it's like if we're not having um, enough houses to meet the needs of our people at the reserve level we can use this work at the international level to put pressure on nation states or if we don't have access uh, to potable water you know we still have to haul water by truck you know we're not hooked up to a water and sewer system or if we don't even have access to broadband like the list will go on and on so that's what i'm trying to say about the relevancy about creating a better quality of life at the reserve community level uh, but doing work at an international level so that's what we're, we're, we have to explain. And it, I think it's a key accountability tool for us uh, when we're doing those those political conversations, uh, because this is a language that Canadian government understands um, and okay. adhering to their adhering to their human rights commitments, I think, is something that they wish to do on many levels. They certainly wish uh, the international community to see them as a good human rights uh, steward. So I think that's an important political pressure point for, for First Nations people. Okay. Now, I talked about Bill C-15 earlier on in my introduction about uh, Canada's got a federal government piece of legislation sponsored by this liberal government uh, uh, regarding the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And given that Canada has endorsed the UN Declaration without qualification now, why is Bill C-15 so important domestically here in the nation state of Canada? I think it's an extremely important next step uh, in our journey to implement the UN Declaration here in Canada. And I have some personal thoughts about that. And I think if we were to proceed without legislation, we will be in exactly the same place that we've been since 2007, uh, where it is a pick and choose race of whoever happens to be sitting in Ottawa at the time. And they will uh, pick certain issues that they want to advocate that may or may not align with the declaration, and they will ignore others. This legislation is important because it helps create, number one, a framework and an action plan moving forward to hopefully bring more order and uh, more principled order to the table. Secondly, it clearly articulates that Indigenous peoples themselves need to be part of those conversations, that no government Mm -hmm. going forward can make those decisions for us without us participating in the conversation. So I think it's essential that we move to co-develop the action plan Mm -hmm. uh, and that is underway here in British Columbia on on that level. I know it's a it's a difficult and rocky road, but this com- this legislation helps compel government to do that. It also helps, and this is a key piece of uh, our understanding as well, give further legal effect to the declaration within Canadian law, and. I I know because I've been doing some legal research, we already have about 98 cases in Canada that are citing the declaration in -hmm. in the court system in one way or another. Uh, But quite frankly, National Chief, they're all over the map. Um, And and there, again, is not clear order on how the declaration is being cited. So I think this legislation helps provide some of that order and direction Mm -hmm. and will encourage the courts to increasingly look to the declaration in making their decisions and hopefully do it in a good way. 
Yeah, the, the way I explain it, Cheryl, to uh, people across Canada, when they're asked about Bill C-15, there's two very fundamental uh, requirements. One, the National Action Plan, which you talked about, which is to be jointly developed with First Nations people and the Crown, the government, and as well, the law and policy review, like current laws and policies in Canada that aren't in line with the Declaration and or Section 35 of Canada's Constitution must be reviewed and updated. So the two very fundamental pieces. So C-15... Like good comments, good uh, good dialogue on that is very important, uh, you know. And I I always hold up and lift up British Columbia as a government because they've already passed Bill Forty One, provincial law to implement the UN Declaration at that provincial government level, mm-hmm. and and this just this this dialogue just plays off of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. One of the calls to action is to have the federal government, provincial governments, and municipal governments uh, pass uh, a laws to endorse and accept the UN declaration for implementation. So BC has done it. Federal government is in the process through Bill C-15 and we still have a lot of work to do. So um, thanks for your comments on that front Mm -hmm. and uh, your work and efforts pushing this forward. Uh, June is coming. So we're always saying regarding Bill C-15, two words are important, royal assent. So we'll keep working towards that end. Now, what would you say to those people? Uh, Because even regarding Bill C-15, and I've made presentations to the INAN committee uh, uh, here in Ottawa already. And things that come up is some members of parliament and, and officials say, you know, we, we may need a definition of free prior informed consent, you know, and, uh, and some will say, yes, you do. Or some will say, no, you don't. And, and how, it, how does that relate to projects pro- being proposed on our ancestral lands, you know? What do you say to those people that are pressing for a definition uh, of free, prior, and informed consent, you know, in relation to projects on our ancestral lands? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's a timely conversation, National Chief. And I think the definition is within the words themselves, free, prior, and informed. And until any human being has had the opportunity to make a decision freely without coercion, and has had the opportunity to weigh in before the decision is made rather than after, and has the the ability to take a look at all of the information in front of them and make an informed and and conscious choice. We as human beings uh, just know these things to be self-evident, to quote a very famous uh, American document. Uh, We understand as as a part of being a self-determining human being, on, on the personal level, we expect or we hope to expect that people have the the right to make decisions freely and with ahead of those deci- way into decisions ahead of them and in an informed manner. We know that as human beings on on our individual level and our individual relationships, where we struggle as a society is to accept that indigenous peoples have that same right equal to all other peoples mm-hmm. as a fundamental part of self-determination, our democracy, our, our very fundamental principles. There is not a reasonable argument that can be made in my mind that that says Indigenous peoples don't share that right on an equal basis to all other peoples. That's absolutely an obscene argument to make in mm-hmm. my mind. 
The question is how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And again, this is not that radical. If it's the city of Calgary or the city of Winnipeg, we all accept that they have a right to weigh in on a decision about something that impacts them. And we have developed processes and procedures to make sure that that happens. And so it's not actually that radical to extend that right to First Nations people, Inuit people, when it involves their lands, their resources, and their essence as peoples. Mm -hmm. If there's something that is going to impact them, we all need to accept that Indigenous peoples have a right to weigh into those conversations and have the ability to say, again, yes, to say no, mm -hmm. or to say yes with conditions. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the line I've been using is, uh, before you try to build anything, Build a respectful relationship with the rights and title holders. You know, build a respectful relationship and have uh, our peoples involved with the decision making from start to finish on anything going forward. And that creates economic certainty, economic stability. So it uh, absolutely does. And I 100% agree with you. And it isn't radical in a democratic society. We can do mm -hmm. this. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned earlier on that you're inheriting a few uh, studies. One, uh, again, on the uh, the rights of Indigenous the, of the Indigenous child, and the right to self-determination. Uh, tell us more about the right to self-determination and what you uh, are involved with right now regarding that study currently going on uh, on the at the expert mechanism level. Yeah, thanks for that, National Chief. I will be uh, inheriting this study in progress uh, on, on May 1st. So I, I understand that there's already been input gathered. So there was a call uh, for written submissions uh, to that study already. So I will be getting that file delivered to me uh, on the 1st of May. And what I'll be looking for is areas that EMRIP can show, again, good practices from around the world. And this is what we want to highlight, both uh, on an educative way, but also a pressure way. We want states to see that recognizing Indigenous self-determination is possible, and here are the variety of ways that it can be done. And uh, so we need to look carefully at various um cases and studies around the world where land rights are being respected uh, and, and done so in a way that the indigenous peoples acknowledge are being respected. It's not good enough for the state to say that they're expect respecting indigenous land rights or governance. The indigenous peoples involved need to agree before it becomes what I consider a good practice. Hmm. So if we're getting good reports from both sides uh, that it's a respectful practice, I think that's something that we should bring forward in the study for all to see and all hmm. to see um, some of the details on how we can do that. And so I'm hoping uh, also because free prior and informed consent is so intricately tied to self-determination as a principle, I'm also hoping that we can speak more about that in the self-determination study as well. Well, that's uh, that's exciting. So May 1, that comes over to you. And uh, that's great because I th I've always said this as well, that one of the most important rights we have as Indigenous peoples um, is the right to self-determination because we have our own languages, we have our own laws, we have our own... Um, uh, identifiable forms of government, uh, so language, land, laws, people, and identifiable forms of government. Five elements, you know, for that inherent right to be recognized, not only domestically, but internationally and globally. So that's a very important study. We're going to be watching that with great interest going forward. Um, one of the other aspects now within the United Nations going on, Cheryl, um, there's also a very important decade 
very important decade. And the decade is regarding the international decade of indigenous languages. So what can and will EMRIP be doing to support that decade going forward? Yes, and this is a, a key area of interest for me as well, National Chief, because I'm coming into EMRIP right on the cusp of this new international decade on Indigenous languages. And of course, that's coming off of uh, the International Year of Indigenous Languages. And what became obvious in the International Year was that one year was clearly not enough uh, to to talk about this issue and to develop concrete uh, solutions-based approaches to not just not just uh, documenting indigenous languages before they disappear, but actually revitalizing and bringing languages back to our peoples and and having our states accept that it's their responsibility to help bring those back. Um, they were taken as part of uh, the, the residential mm -hmm. school area at the hands of the state, and therefore the state needs to, by the state I mean Canada, uh, has a role to play and a responsibility in returning and re patriating our languages to our peoples. And so this is an area uh, of key concern to me personally, uh, because uh, as so many of us, I'm an intergenerational survivor of uh, multiple generations of residential school, and our language has been taken from us, and I would like it back. Mm -hmm. And I think I think uh, both the, the United States and Canada have uh, an obligation to participate in that. So I'm I'm thrilled to see the international decade come into fruition. I'm excited to play any role I can in making that successful. The initiative is largely being led by UNESCO, uh, which is a different agency in the United Nations. But in my role in EMRIP, I intend to fully support and participate in that process in any way that I can, because uh, not only on a policy level, but like I said, to me personally, this is an issue that I care deeply about. Uh, it's so important to our identity and nationhood and sovereignty as pe First Nations people, Indigenous peoples. And I've, uh, I know through uh, our work do developing C91, the Indigenous Language Revitalization Bill in Canada, uh, the importance of that bill. And, uh, and I totally support your statement about the nation states have a big responsibility and a fiduciary trust-like responsibility because uh, through the their policies of the residential schools, they try to take it away, our languages away. They have a big responsibility to try to bring those languages back in just as much energy and effort as they tried to use to eradicate them. So, um, I absolutely agree. The um, So that's important. And our elders say it's linked to our, our sovereignty, but our ceremonies and our traditions, everything is, our worldview is through our languages. So it's, it's all holistic, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it, it's it's our cultures, it's our languages, it's our governance, it's our spirituality, our ceremonies. You can't separate language mm -hmm. from from all of that. It, it's it's so much the essence of who we are as peoples. Yeah, it's it's you need to know who you are and where you come from. It all comes from language and ceremony. So that's so important. I'm glad that there's going to be support locally, regionally, nationally, internationally to revitalize indigenous languages. Um, and I think that's a, a good segue to one of my last points. One of the things I always ask uh, our guests on the Akamema podcast near the end is, you know, in light of all the challenging things we're faced with here in 2021, we're faced with COVID-19, you know, and the pandemic and all the things we're seeing uh, from racism, discrimination, and uh, all the things we feel as, as people in Canada, what gives you hope? What provides you hope? <laughs> 
I'm going to tell you, National Chief, what my grandmother always said. And and she was born in uh, 1912. So she lived through some very hard times and had tremendous challenges in her life. And uh, she was actually the most important figure in raising us uh, because as so many, our, our, our parents were out working, uh, trying to uh, make a living. So uh, we were largely raised by grandparents. And she always told us from the time we were small children, no matter what happens, you never give up. You never lose sight of who you are. And you always, uh, when life knocks you down, and it will uh, quite often sometimes, and it comes in waves sometimes, no matter what, you pick yourself up, you brush yourself off, and you keep going. And always remember always who you are and where you come from. And that's how I was raised uh, with that message delivered daily, weekly. And so that's very much a part of who I am. And then I've also just watched all of these advocates uh, that I've been raised around since I was a a little girl. No one ever gives up. Uh, and, And there will be obstacles placed in your way repeatedly. And you keep your eye on those principles. And I think that's where the UN Declaration is a a beautiful document, Um, not just because it helps us in our day-to-day advocacy, but it helps us remember where we come from. And those advocates that, that went to the UN and essentially burst themselves into the front gates and insisted on being there, they sat for decades, years and years, uh, fully advancing what our rights were and they didn't give up and they they encountered so many obstacles on the way so it's a gift to us and I think we need to recognize all of the struggle that went into that and uphold that in our day-to-day work hmm. Cheryl Lightfoot thank you so much for being on our Akamemuk podcast and thank you so much for the work you're doing at that international level on behalf of all indigenous peoples thank you so much national chief i deeply appreciate the opportunity to have this time with you and to speak to your listeners and i want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemuk podcast if you enjoyed it please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes give us a rating And tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. (laughs) 